We're going to talk about confidence today, okay? Confidence. And to give you an example of what I mean by confidence, uh, let me ask you, is there someone you go to for financial counsel, someone you have confidence in as an expert financially? Uh, I came across an amusing story in the news recently. Uh, There is a London newspaper that decided to run a little financial investment competition, and so they gave equal amounts of money to three different investors to see who would get the greatest returns. So the, the first investor was an expert from a prestigious financial firm. The second investor was actually a group, a group of students from a local business college, and the third investor... I'm not making this up, was a cat named Orlando. They, they would have the cat toss this little toy mouse onto a numbered grid, and depending on the number, they'd make an investment accordingly. Well, at the end of one year, guess who produced the best results? The cat, Orlando, did. Had a better portfolio returns than the financial expert or the, uh, you know, the college group of uh, business students. So, be careful of where you put your confidence. You know, who are you trusting in? This is true not only in financial matters, it's true in every area of life. How often are we super confident in somebody or, or something only to be let down by the source of our confidence? Maybe there's some area in your life today in which your confidence has been recently shattered. Confidence in a friend, confidence in your abilities, uh, whatever. Or maybe you've never been a very confident person to begin with. So confidence, that's the theme for today. We're going to get it out of 1 John chapter 5. So turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 John chapter 5. Get the outline from your program. So as God teaches you what he wants you to know about confidence, you you could write it down. All right, we are, this is the final installment in 11-part series. We've been studying our way through the New Testament epistle of 1 John. I am confident that we are going to finish today, all right? And this series has been called I Am a Disciple because for five chapters in his epistle, John gives us a picture of what a true disciple of Jesus looks like. This is what a Christ follower, genuine Christ follower is like. And today what we're going to discover is that a genuine Christ follower is confident, You say, confident in what? Well, we're going to look at five spiritual realities in which we can place our confidence. But before we take a look at those five important realities, there are a couple of words I want you to note in today's text. Again, this is why it's good to bring your own Bible, because I'm going to ask you to mark it up as we go. If you're open to 1 John 5, we're going to look at verses 13 to 21, but the first first word I want you to note pops up in the first line of verse 14, and it's today's theme word. It's the title of today's sermon. It's the word confidence. This is the confidence, John says, that we have in approaching God. So if you got your own Bible, circle the word confidence, draw a little line to the margin, and write key word. Okay, this is the theme word for the text. The other key word I want you to note Uh, We won't be circling it right now because it pops up seven times in the text. So as we study our way through these verses, you're going to see it come up again and again and again and again. It's the word know, K-N-O-W. There are certain things that John wants us to know, that he wants us to be sure of, secure in. He wants us to be confident about these things. 
Now, one other word of of introduction before we look at the text itself and the five realities we could place our confidence in. Uh, You know, if you've been with us over the course of the series, that John keeps going back again and again and again to three tests that he hopes genuine Christ followers will be able to pass. So if, if you want to know if you're a true disciple, John says, here are the three tests, and you know them by now. There's the theological test, okay, you believe the truth, Uh, about the Jesus of the Bible. You've studied this for yourself. You've come to your own conclusions about Jesus, and you've put your trust in him. You've surrendered your life to him. Second test is the moral test. If you're a genuine Christ follower, John has been saying, then then you walk in obedience to God's commands. Not not perfectly. None of us do. But but you want to know what this book says, and you want to apply it to your life. You want to do it. The third test is the social test. Every day you're asking God, God, please help me love people, especially difficult to love people, needy people, irritating people. So you got the theological test, the moral test, the social test. Now, here's something I haven't told you about the the three tests. John wants you to pass them. He wants you to pass them with flying colors. Okay, the reason he's given these tests is not so as to disqualify people who are phonies. So you take the test and say, ah, you're a pretender, you didn't pass. You know, some of us grew up with teachers like that, right? They they love to concoct tests that nobody could pass. And, uh, you know, seem to get a thrill out of saying that nobody had learned anything in their class. We're all losers. We all failed. This is not John. John has given us three tests because he hopes we'll pass them. He hopes that we'll prove ourselves to be genuine Christ followers, that we'll have confidence in our relationship with Christ. So what are the five things we could be confident in? Number one, jot this down. John wants us to be confident in salvation. Confident in salvation. I'm going to start with the first verse of our text, 1 John 5, verse 13. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know There's our first no, K-N-O-W, so that you may know that you have eternal life. You may be confident in salvation. I learned recently about a fad that is uh, sweeping the nation of Japan. Uh, People are going to plastic surgeons and having them alter the palms of their hands. Now, why would they do that? Some of you can probably guess. According to the ancient art of palm reading, the lines in your hands determine your ultimate destiny, your fate. And so for a mere $1,000, you go to the plastic surgeon and he'll, he'll change the lines. And that's not too much money to pay when you stop and think, of, you know, your eternal destiny is at stake, right? My guess is that most of you don't believe in that. You don't believe that the lines in your hands determine your eternal destiny. My question is, what do you believe determines your eternal destiny. See, my guess is for most people, if you ask them the question, okay, assuming there is a heaven, why should God let you into his heaven? My guess is the most common response would be, well, because I've tried to be a good person, right? So I've tried to be a good uh, spouse, a good worker, a good citizen, and besides that, I've never done anything really, 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 like really bad. So our answer has something to do, our confidence is in, is in what? It's our track record of good versus evil. We've got this image in our mind that at the end of time, God will take out a cosmic scale. He'll put all our good deeds on one side, our bad deeds on the other, and we're just hoping and praying that the good outweighs the bad. Now, there's a couple of problems with this view. 
You know, the, the first problem is it will not lead to confidence in this life because you will never be sure if you've done enough. How many good things do you need to outweigh the bad things in your life? What if you get to the gate of heaven and discover you're like five good deeds short? Yikes. So this this is not good. The second erroneous notion here is that somehow our good deeds can, can cancel out our bad deeds. Stop and think about that. What, what makes us think it works that way? I saw an article in the news recently, a, a Wall Street tycoon is in court for insider trading, okay? And his lawyer is presenting what they call a good guy, a nice guy defense. The nice guy defense goes like this, but judge, this guy has given away reams of money to worthy causes, you know, to AIDS research and to uh, famine relief in Africa and so on. And the judge's response was, that's wonderful but it doesn't cancel out his crimes. Guilty. It doesn't cancel out crimes. Guilty. Good deeds can't guarantee eternal life. So what can? Go back to verse 13. John says, if you believe in the name of the Son of God, stop there, the word believe in the Bible is much stronger than the way we use it. We use believe to mean, well, you, you agree to certain facts. The, the, the Bible word believe means you put your whole trust, you surrender yourself to something. So if you believe in the name of the Son of God, you surrender to him, you may know, John says, K-N-O-W, know that you have eternal life. You know, occasionally when, uh, when I tell someone that, you know, I know that I have eternal life, I know that I'm saved, you know, they'll, they'll accuse me of being a bit arrogant That's kind of a cheeky thing to say. You must really think you're good, huh? And then I have to explain, no, actually just the opposite. I don't think I'm that great. I don't think I deserve salvation. I'm not confident in myself at all. You know, I know myself to be a screw-up. I'm a sinner. And, And my sin has separated me from a holy God who also happens to be the author of life. So by unplugging from him, I have separated myself from life. What I deserve, the wages of my sin, according to the Bible, are death. That's what I deserve. But fortunately for me, God sent his son, Jesus, who was willing to die my death, who was willing to serve as my substitute if I'll put my hope and my my trust in him, His death pays the penalty that my sins deserve. See, my confidence is not in me. My confidence is in Jesus. What about you? Can you say the same for yourself? Are you confident of your salvation? Confidence comes from a relationship with Christ. So are you confident that at some point in time you have surrendered your life to Christ? You are a surrendered to Christ person. Are you confident of that? Let me suggest a couple of confidence boosters in this regard. First confidence booster. If you've never done this before, make your decision to surrender to Christ in the presence of somebody else. It's just a simple thing to do. Make your decision to surrender to Christ in the presence of somebody else. Now, the reason I say that is occasionally I'll ask someone, so have you surrendered to Christ? And they'll respond, well, I think I have. And my, my response to that is, you, you think you have. You know, this is not like, I think I closed the garage door before I drove to church today. This, we're talking about eternal life. Don't, don't just think you've surrendered to Christ. Know it. 
How do you know it? Well, I usually say to a person like that, can we pray right now? I mean, you could know it. We could pray. You could do it. You know, I can vouch for the fact I was there when you surrendered to Christ. Let me say to you, whether you're uh, listening today in Bartlett or Blackberry Creek or DeKalb or in St. Charles, you know, if, you're not, if you don't know that you've surrendered to Christ, pray with somebody before, before the morning's out, before you leave the auditoriums of our campuses, and stop at a welcome center, pray with one of our prayer team members. Say, you know, I just want to be sure. I want to know that I've surrendered to Christ. The other confidence booster is this. Go public with your decision. I mean, this is really throwing your hat over the, over the fence. Jesus actually said that if we're not willing to own him publicly, he won't own us before his heavenly Father. Those are serious words. Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33. You can check them out for yourself. And the way that we publicly own Jesus, according to the Bible, is through baptism which is why hundreds of people every year get baptized to Christ Community Church. Our next baptism celebration is on Father's Day, a great day for those of you who are men especially, who've never gone public with your decision to follow Christ to do so. Let your kids know. You know, Dad is a follower of Jesus. Great thing to do. So, confidence in salvation. That's what John wants us to have. Number two, he wants us to have confidence in prayer. Go back to the text and we're going to pick up where we left off, verse 14. John says, this is the confidence, there's our key word, the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know, there's another no, if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know There's another no. We know that we have what we asked of him. Have you ever complained about God's failure to answer your prayers? Of course you have. We all have, right? You know, you ask God to do something for you or to give you something and he didn't come through. You ever ever complain about that? You know, God didn't deliver. Somebody sent me an online article recently uh, posted by a travel agency listing some of the customer complaints, dissatisfied customers, some of what people have wrote in. Let me share a few of those with you. Uh, First one, somebody writes in to this travel agency, we booked an excursion to a water park, but no one told us to bring our own swimsuits. (laughs) A water park, yeah. Yeah, you ought to put that in the brochure, right? Swimsuits not included, okay? Here's, Here's another one. I love this. The beach was too sandy. (laughs) Hey, that's the trouble with sand. It can be sandy. Okay, how about this one? We went to Spain and we had a problem with the taxi drivers who all spoke Spanish. (laughs) One final one. This is my favorite. I compared the size of our one-room bedroom suite to our friend's three-bedroom, and ours was significantly smaller. <laughs> like, do the math, folks. You know, one-bedroom, three-bedroom. Are, are you a dissatisfied customer when it comes to prayer? Has God not given you what you asked for? And has that led to a loss of confidence when you pray? Why well, pray? God's not going to answer anyway. Well, John tells us what our problem is in the verses we just read together. He says, if you want to be confident when you pray, 
Look at the closing line of verse 14. Then you, you ought to ask according to God's will. See, when you, you pray according to God's will, then you're certain he's heard you. You're confident that he's going to give you what you've asked. Some of us approach God as if he's this you know, giant vending machine. So whatever the customer pushes the button for, that's what you ought to be able to get at the, you know, at the bottom of the machine. God is not a vending machine. God is an all-wise, loving, heavenly Father who is determined to give his children what is best. And how many of you know that what God knows is best for us is not always what we think is best for us, Right? And so what John is suggesting here is that when we go to prayer for something, we, we ought to give some consideration to what might God's will be in this situation? What might God be up to? What might God want to be doing in my life right now? And then to pray according to those lines, according to God's will, and look at the last line of verse 15, and then you'll know, we'll know that we have what we've asked of him. You know, there's a verb tense here I don't want you to miss. When he says we know that we have, it's present tense, have. Not future tense, so you pray and you hope somewhere in the future God will deliver. John uses a present tense. You pray and you're so confident, having prayed according to God's will, that he's going to deliver, that it's like God has already put it in the bank. He's made the deposit. The prayer has been answered. Let me give you an example of what this looks like, okay, praying according to God's will, because that's how you have this confidence. You align your prayers with God's will, and then you're sure God's going to answer. Okay, let's say that you're struggling financially today, and so what you'd really like and what you decide to pray about is that, is that God will prompt your boss to give you a raise this week. Now, that may be God's will. It may. In fact, Scripture says one of the reasons we don't get what we want from God is we just, we don't pray, we don't ask. So go ahead and pray that. You know, God prompt my boss to give me a raise. However, that, that might not be God's will in your situation. His will may be something different. His will may be, for example, that you learn to be content with what you have. That may be God's will. And so he may want you to pray, and God help me to be content with what you've given me. Or God may want to meet your financial needs, but may not want to do it through a raise. Maybe he wants you to trust him to replace your clunker car with something new that you get at a steal. Or, or maybe your daughter you're sending to college and you don't know how you're going to pay. Maybe God wants to provide a scholarship. See, who's to say how God wants you to trust him to provide an answer to your financial difficulty? Or, or maybe God's will is that you learn how to be a better money manager. Maybe God wants you to sign up for Christ Community Church's Money Life course that'll teach you the biblical principles of managing your money. Maybe that's what God wants you to pray. God, help me to be more astute at managing the money you've given me. Or maybe God's will for you is you become a giver and God's saying, I'm not going to give you a penny more till you learn to give on what I've already given you. See, God's will could be any number of things. Whatever you're inclined to pray for, Ask God to give you his perspective on what you most need in that situation and then pray confidently along those lines. You see how it works? Now, some of you are thinking, well, you know, I can understand how this approach applies when I'm tempted to pray for something that may be a bit, a bit on the selfish side. God wants me to align my priorities with his will. Okay, I get that. 
But what about when I'm praying for something totally unselfish? Okay, let's say hypothetically, my sister's got cancer. Now, you know, it ought to be obvious what God's will is, right? I mean, do I really have to defer to God's will? God's will is to heal my sister, isn't it? Well, is it? You, you remember who taught us how to pray according to God's will? Who was it that taught us this lesson? It's Jesus. Garden of Gethsemane shortly before his arrest and his execution. And he knows the cross is just around the corner. And so he pleads with his heavenly father to rescue him from this fate. Now, what else could possibly be God's will other than to get Jesus out of this situation? To save him from the torture, the agony of the cross. That must be God's will. But Jesus adds to his prayer, yet not what I will, but what you will. And amazingly, in this situation, God's will is not to spare his son. His will is that his son would die and in dying provide salvation for millions of people who through the centuries would put their hope and their trust in him. See, prayer is not, not about getting what we want. Prayer is about aligning our wills with what God wants. Let, let me repeat that. Prayer is not about getting what we want. It's about, about aligning our wills with what God wants. I like what pastor and author John Piper says about this. He says, prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie, not a domestic intercom. It exists for advancing the mission, okay, God's mission, God's will, not for calling the butler to turn up the thermostat. You know, how, how many of our prayers... We're totally oblivious to what God's will is, what his mission, what he's trying to accomplish. We're just asking the butler to give us a little more comfort, turn up the thermostat. Now, I, I don't want to discourage you when I, when I say that from praying for little stuff in your life because the Bible tells us to pray about everything. And I don't want to discourage you from, from letting God know what's on your heart, I, you know, I'm not the least bit embarrassed to say to God, God, here's what I'd like you to do in this situation. Bare my soul to him. But just make sure you add the stinger and really mean it, yet not what I will, but what you want. And then seek to understand, what might God be up to in this situation? How could I pray according to his will in my circumstances? You get it? Good. Third, John wants us to be confident in interventions. Okay, go back to 1 John 5. In the next couple of verses, verses 16 and 17, John moves from talking about prayer in general to talking about a specific kind of prayer. I'm going to call it intervention prayer. Confidently praying for people who've wandered away from God and as a result have gotten themselves into trouble. How does John want us to pray? Look at verses 16 and 17. He says, if you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. Now, all wrongdoing is sin, and there's a sin that does not lead to death. Now, in order for us to understand who John wants us to pray for, we, we got to figure out what he means by, you know, people who commit a sin that leads to death and people who commit a sin that does not lead to death. What, what is John talking about here? 
You know, this has been debated by Bible scholars over the centuries. Some have said, well, John obviously has two categories of sin in mind. There are those, you know, minor transgressions, sins that don't lead to death, and then there are the big whoppers, get you in a lot of trouble sins. In Roman Catholic theology, if you grew up Catholic, they had names for these two categories. The not-a-big-deal sin were called venial sins. They would just add some years to your time in purgatory, right? Or then there were the you're-going-to-burn-in-hell sins, which were called what? Mortal sins. The only trouble with that categorization is you won't find it in the Bible. And you, you definitely are not going to find it in the, the epistle of 1 John. John's not talking in those terms. So what does he mean? Let, let's start with the sin that leads to death. What, it, what sin does he have in mind? Well, many Bible scholars believe that John has in mind the, the one sin that will get you condemned for all eternity, and that is to reject Jesus Christ, God's Savior. God has sent you his Son willing to die your death. Put your hope and your trust in him. The only thing that can damn you is to turn your back on that and say, I don't want to believe. I want to go my own way. And, and John probably has a particular group of people in mind when, when he says, you know, there are those who sin that leads to death, commit a sin that leads to death. John was writing to a church that had been infiltrated by false teachers. For, for a while, these people pretended to be Christ followers. But now they, they were showing their true colors. They were out and out against Jesus, adamantly opposed to him. What, what John says about these people is that they've committed a sin that leads to death. And look at the, the second half of verse 16. He says, I'm, I'm not telling you to pray for people like that. That's an interesting way to put it, isn't it? Now, please understand, John is not telling us that we shouldn't pray for people like that. He's just telling us not telling us that we should. There, there's a subtle difference here. John isn't heartless. He doesn't say, okay, here's a category of people, you know, just don't pray for them at all. What, what he's telling us he, is he doesn't think it's the best use of our breath to pray for unbelievers who once claimed to be Christ followers but are now deceitful, arrogant, hard-hearted, Christ-denying unbelievers. You know, this is a big sin that leads to death, and if they're that hard-hearted, John's suggesting maybe you ought to spend your prayer time on a different group of people. Who? Well, people whose sin does not lead to death. Pe people who are sinning in ways that they might be willing to repent of if somebody just cared enough to prayerfully intervene in their lives. Pe people who are committing garden-variety sins who might be willing to repent of those sins if somebody cared enough to prayerfully intervene in their lives. You recall the story of uh, the two brothers, Cain and Abel, from the Old Testament? John had actually referenced that story back in chapter 3 of his epistle. Okay, Cain hated his brother, Abel, and so eventually kills him. And so God shows up on the scene and he says, hey, Cain, where's Abel? And Abel sarcastically retorts, how do I know? Am I my brother's keeper? Remember that line? You know, people have been using the same question as a dodge ever since Cain first coined it. We, we use it to excuse ourselves from having to take responsibility for other people. Am I my brother's keeper? See, it's, it's just another way of saying, hey, it's not my job to look out for people who have gotten themselves into trouble. It's not, it's not my job to reel people back in who've wandered far from God. It's not my job. 
But the Bible doesn't let us take that line. John tells us indeed that it is our responsibility to begin praying for people like that. Look again at the beginning of verse 16. If you see a brother or sister commit a sin that doesn't lead to death, in other words, any old sin, you should pray and God will give them life. In other words, if you'll pray, God will restore them to the path where they'll experience the abundant life that God offers. Who do you know? Who do you know that that needs prayerful intervention on their behalf? Instead of talking about them and their problem to somebody else, which would be gossip, why not talk about them and their problem to God. John says if if you'll do this, God could restore them to life. Maybe it's somebody who's been drinking too much. You know somebody like that? You know somebody who's running with the wrong group of friends? You know somebody who used to have an interest in, in God? Maybe they came to Christ Community Church. Maybe they were part of your community group. And these days they're too busy for God? You know somebody who's been neglecting their family for the sake of work? You you know somebody who's sleeping with somebody they shouldn't be sleeping with? You, You know somebody who's spending themselves into debt? Do you know somebody who's gotten themselves into trouble? Do you? John would ask, are you praying for them? Are you earnestly praying that God would restore them to the path of life? And, and, and here's the hard part now. Once you've intervened in somebody's life in prayer, God may want you to intervene in their life in person. Like I'm, I'm suggesting actually getting in their face. Now, this is where we really start objecting. Well, that would be none of my business. You know, I could go and talk to them, but they would never listen to me anyway. Or, I, you know, I need to protect this relationship, and a confrontation would jeopardize the relationship. Or I'm, I'm far from perfect myself, which they'll just point out to me. See, we've got 101 excuses why not to intervene in person. And the bottom line is we lack confidence. If we were more confident that our intervention would lead to God restoring that person, God prompting that person to repent, God bringing them back to the path of life, we would pick up the phone and make the call. We would set up the get-together at Starbucks. We would dare to express our concerns face-to-face. Confidence in interventions. You know, if you're looking for some verses to bolster your confidence in this regard, let me give you three. Jesus says in Matthew 18, verse 15, if your brother or sister sins, you know, go and point out their fault. Obviously, he's not talking about the minor indiscretions, but if they're doing something self-destructive, something that's leading them away from God, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. And if they listen to you, you've won them over. See the hope Jesus holds out here? Galatians 6 verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit, not, not perfect people, but if you're trying to walk in harmony with the Spirit, then you should restore that person gently. One more, James 5, verses 19 and 20. If one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, 
Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Don't you want to be one of those, those people who saves uh, somebody else from the brink of, brink of self-destruction and restores them to the path of life? That's what Jay did. Remember the video that you almost saw the entire story of? And Chad saying, you know, so God put this guy, Jay, in my life, and he got in my face like a real man. Remember those lines? John wants you to have confidence in intervention. You know, as I prayed about the results of this sermon, its impact upon Christ's community attenders today. My prayer has been, God, turn loose hundreds of people who know those who've strayed far from you and give us a determination to pursue them this week. Wow. Number four, John wants you to have confidence in spiritual growth. In spiritual growth, verses 18 and 19. He says, we know, there's another K-N-O-W, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin, does not continue to sin. The one, Jesus, who was born of God, keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know, another know, that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. John wants us to be confident about our spiritual growth. Now, there are two sides to that growth. There's a negative side and a positive side, and the negative side the verses I just read to you explain that, you know, if you're truly a Christ follower, then you're breaking the patterns of sin in your life. We, we talked about this several weeks ago. John brought up this same subject back in chapter 3. We did a sermon called Sin Busters. If you missed it or you've forgotten its application, I'd encourage you to go online, pick it up, listen to it the first time or listen to it again. Because John says that for a Christ follower to continue in sin, it's not impossible. We all still sin on occasion, but he says it ought to be unthinkable. We ought to be breaking patterns of sin in our life. We ought to see that happening all the time. You know, I used to do this. I don't do it anymore. Now, why would we think it unthinkable to continue in sin? You might recall because Jesus died for those sins. You know, as one Bible writer says, why would a dog, you know, you be like a dog that returns to its vomit? Why would you want to go back to the stuff Jesus died to save you from? The other reason that John reiterates here in the closing verses of his epistle, same argument that he gave back in chapter 3, is that Jesus' death on the cross broke Satan's stranglehold in your life. See, the whole world is under his rule, under his control, but you, you became born of God and were set free. When, when my son Andrew, when he was a little boy, we had to break him of this habit whenever we'd leave him with a sitter. If the sitter asked him to do something he didn't want to do, he would look at the sitter and say, you're not the boss of me. This is not a good thing for a disobedient boy to say to a sitter. But I want to tell you, it's a great thing to say if you're a Christ follower speaking to Satan. You are not the boss of me. There are times when I say this right out loud. I look around quick to make sure nobody's listening. <laughs> you know, when I'm, I'm feeling the tug of some temptation when Satan would love to control me with lust or with materialism, or with anger, or with selfishness, or with pride, I say right out loud, you are not the boss of me. Jesus broke your hold on me. He set me free. 
See, this is the negative side of spiritual growth. You're breaking with patterns of sin in your life. If you're growing spiritually, you could look back over the last year or three years or five years, and you, you, yeah, I see this happening. Now, there's a positive, there's a flip side to this. The positive side of growing in your relationship with God is just getting to know him better. That's what John goes on to say in verse 20. Look at verse 20. We know... Another no. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know, K-N-O-W, know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He's the true God and eternal life. John says spiritual growth means you're, you're getting deeper in your relationship with God. You're coming to know him more intimately. Is that true of you? Negatively, are you breaking the patterns of sin? Positively, are you, you, you pushing roots down into God's word, growing more intimate in your relationship with God? Some of, you, some of you surrendered your life to Jesus less than five years ago. Okay, You have been on a steep learning curve. And no doubt you can look back five years ago and say, oh my goodness, look at what's happened to me since. I never, I never could have seen myself sitting in church on a weekend with an open Bible. You know, really trying to get to know God better. This is amazing. But I want to speak for a moment to those of you who surrendered your life to Jesus more than five years ago or more than 10 years ago or more than 20 years ago. And I want to ask you the question, are you still growing? Are you still seeing signs of growth? Are you still breaking patterns of sin? Are you still pushing roots down into God's word and getting to know him better? You know, the writer of Hebrews complains to his readers in Hebrews 5.12. He says, by this time in your spiritual lives, you, you guys ought to be teachers. And instead, I'm still teaching you the basics of the Christian life. You're not teaching anybody. Is that you? Is it, you know, you, you've known Jesus for five years, 10 years, 20 years. By this time, you ought to be teachers. You ought to be reproducing yourself in the lives of other people. You ought to be teaching a kid's world class, or you ought to be mentoring middle school students at Genesis, or you ought to be leading a men's community group or couples or women's community group, or you ought to be the director of some ministry around here, maybe one of our community impact projects, or you ought to be the captain of a GO team next time we go to Nicaragua or Brazil, and instead what you're doing, you're sitting and soaking on weekends and that's as far as it gets and John would say I want you to be confident that you could grow in Christ that you've got something to offer somebody else that you could reproduce yourself in the lives of others I want you to be confident in your growth lastly John wants us to be confident in God back to the very last verse of the text we've made it verse 21 dear children Keep yourselves from idols. Now, when I first read this, I thought, this is a strange way for John to end this epistle. I mean, this warning against idols seems to come out of left field. There isn't a single reference to idols in the 105 verses of 1 John until the very last verse. And then suddenly it's, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, where did that come from? Well, it actually comes from something that John said in the previous verse. 
In fact, it comes from something that John said three times in the previous verse. If you got your own Bible, circle the word true in verse 20. Pops up three times. John uses it to describe God, to describe Jesus. They're true, true, true. See, John wants us to make sure that we get the true God, not some God substitute, not some worthless idol that we put in God's place. Have you ever tried a substitute for a high-quality product only to be really disappointed afterwards? Okay, let let me give you an example. You're going to paint your living room, and so you go out to get some Benjamin Moore top-grade paint. But while you're, you're out at Target, you happen to see these gallons of very cheap paint, no name paint. And you're, you do the math. You get out your little calculator. Wow, this is much cheaper. And so you buy it and you roll it on and it's like, ugh. It's not the right color and it's streaks and it's lumpy and it's, you know, why, why didn't I hold out for the best? See, this is John's point in the closing verse of this epistle. Don't settle for a God substitute in your life. Don't invest your life in idols because idols can't do for you what only God can do. Now, what do I mean, don't invest your life in idols? Well, think of the resources you have to invest. You know, resources like time. What's getting your time these days? Really, what is getting big chunks of your time? Is it TV? You know, your evenings are usually filled with TV. Is it kids' sports? You're always running around to some game. Is it Facebooking, that black hole that we fall into? I came across an interesting article, by the way. This is an aside. It's got nothing to do with the sermon. But if you're interested in watching sports, if that's how you're spending a lot of your time, I read that the average three-hour baseball game includes less than 18 minutes of action. How about that? Less than 18 minutes of pitching and running, base running, and, and so on. So is that how we're spending our time? How much of our time does God get? See, is it God or is it a God substitute that's getting our time? What about, take another resource, money. What's getting your money? New set of golf clubs, uh, travel, home remodeling, prom this time of year. How much of your money is God getting? Is God getting this resource or are God substitutes getting this resource? Here's another resource, your affection. How would you complete the sentence right off the top of your head? I really love what? It's like, I really love the Cubs. (laughs) That's a sorry God substitute. (laughs) I really love eating. I really love sailing. I really love my job. Okay, again, ask yourself, so how much of my affection is is God giving? See, whatever we're investing our resources in, if this is a Johnny OneNote sort of thing. If we're doing this more than investing these resources in God, that thing becomes an idol to us, and we can't depend on it to do what only God can do. That's John's warning here. we, We look to our idols to bring us joy. We look to our idols to calm us in the midst of anxiety. We look to our idols to give us a sense of purpose or to make us feel secure, but idols can't do that for us. And John wants to spare us the pain of finding that out the hard way. Let, let, let me give you a real minor illustration of this, and I'll close with this. So I'm going to ask our worship teams at our four campuses, 
come and join us on stage. We're going to sing a song of worship to the one true God we should have our confidence in. We're going to bring him gifts, offerings, as our way of saying, you own me. I belong to you. Okay? We're going to do that in just a moment. But here's the illustration. I had a bad day this last week, middle of the week. Again, one of those days where you know, I had a couple of conversations that didn't go well, a little bit of conflict, uh, meetings that you know, were overdrawn, didn't get the work done I hoped to get done, had a sinus headache going on, doctor thinks it's a food allergy reaction. You know, so how do you deal with something like that? I'll tell you what I did. On the way home, I stopped at Redbox and picked up a movie. Gravity, because everybody's been saying, oh, that's the best movie of the year. Okay, so a couple hours later, I'm done with gravity, and I've still got the sinus headache, and I've still got these conflicts rolling around in my mind that haven't been resolved, and I still feel crap because I didn't get all my stuff done that I wanted to get done. See, anyway, yeah, there's nothing wrong. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with chilling with a movie in the evening. It's just, is this your go-to God is your go-to God, is it sports? Is your go-to God just work a few extra hours at work because you feel significant in doing that? Is your go-to God calling the travel agent and planning the next trip? What do you go to to get a sense of a pleasure, a sense of significance in life, a sense of purpose? John says, idols will let you down. Go to the one true living God. Put your confidence in him. You get it? Good.